Welcome to the Crypto Podcast. You can find all our episodes on the CryptoPodcast.org. We're also on BitChute and YouTube. You'll find the links in the podcast description. I'm also a podcasting coach because I've got four other podcasts with four of them getting to the top half percent. And you'll find everything about me on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, he's the CEO of Pennyworks. Please welcome Ivan Zhang. Did I pronounce your surname correctly? Perfect, Roy. Thanks for having me in the show. No problem at all. So you might let people know because I know you've got some nice qualifications. You, you've worked in the financial industry, so you might let people know who's Ivan. Sure. So I started my career in the depths of the financial crisis in traditional banking. And so I was working as a senior portfolio manager at Bank of America for the better part of a decade. And throughout that time, um, as you know, historically, crypto launched in uh, essentially in 2009. And uh, we got into crypto maybe in 2012, 13. And at the beginning, it was still very nascent. There were only one or two places you could trade them. But for us being kind of finance and tech junkies, it was pretty apparent that this was going to be something fundamentally new and interesting and potentially world-changing. And so we've been keeping track of that technology for a while. We even started our crypto mining facility in 2016, where we specialize in mining Ethereum. And uh, eventually DeFi came along, which is what the focus of our startup is. And we said, hey, look, we've been finance and fixing come for over a decade. We've been crypto for this long. We have to do something with this, right? We have to bring benefits of DeFi to the broader public. And that's kind of where uh, we, uh, Pennyworks was born. And uh, that's what we've been working on. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So you mentioned on the early days, you know, there wasn't many doing it. I know Monk Gox was one. Did you get caught up in that? Yeah, yeah, I'm still waiting for my settlement from Mon Gox, you know. Uh, yeah, this I, is kind of I like... think it was in a documentary done about it. It was kind of fascinating. And did did, did he get jail or what happened? The actual main guy in that, did you know? So, so I didn't follow too closely, but there was a pretty funny meme. So he did get to jail, but I think uh, you know, before he went to jail, he was somewhat overweight, and then after he came out of jail, he must have lost like. I don't know, like 30, 40 pounds and he was in a suit and he basically, people were just making a, a fun of him or rather, this is a Japanese, uh, you know, jail system, right? You, you come out and then you, you look like, uh, you know, you, you have a good workout, like you're, you're on top of things. So, and the irony is because of the uniqueness of the situation, the way that the bankruptcy worked, that it actually was no longer bankrupt because it took so long for the proceedings that the price of Bitcoin appreciated well above the liabilities. Now, technically, they're not above the liabilities if you use it in, in Bitcoin units, but the way that the laws works there is that it struck in Japanese yen at the time of the bankruptcy. So what's going to happen is the total asset of this bankrupt entity is actually much higher than the total liabilities that are owed to the, 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 uh, to the creditors. And so they had to change it from a bankruptcy to a rehabilitation, which means, okay, now they're going to be back in their company. So you end up being that potentially this, this person that would otherwise been in, in jail for the rest of their life comes out and potentially is a millionaire because, you know, he's technically is an owner of a company that now is worth billions of dollars, even though it was previously defunct. That's unbelievable. And I, I think they, they came out saying that somebody in Russia had actually got it. But has that been confirmed that the actual person who... I mean, who knows? It could have been all in-house. I mean, it's it, unfortunately like it's probably impossible to figure this out. Isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. I think, well, so there's two kind of separate initiatives. One is like working through the bankruptcy, which is essentially all the people, uh, the lawyers in Japan were doing. I think that there might have been some people that are trying to recover the, the crypto, but you know, at that point, it was so early in the day. I don't think that there was good infrastructure to figure out, especially like the flow of funds relative to what, what we have today. But, you know, even then it was a still a substantial amount that was left over. And so what people were saying is like, look, let's, if you, if you were trying to wait for that, that would drag on the case even longer. And it's already been <laughs> over 10 years, right? So imagine if this had changed, oh, we recover another 50 Bitcoin or 50,000 Bitcoins, then you have do a huge reallocation again and recompute some of these things that might even take longer so i'm i'm just excited that like at some point this is going to get settled and i'm gonna get a small check back for whatever else last oh, excellent excellent so you, you mentioned about the the mining that you were doing the ethereum so like wh wh where were you actually doing that so we're, I mean, I'm, I'm based in the uh, uh, United States, right? So we were doing it in the United States. And at the beginning, I was just playing around. So we would go to uh, the electronics store. So the big one in the United States called uh, Best Buy. And we just call them and say, hey, can I have some graphics cards? Yeah, yeah, we just got some today. It's like, okay, how many do you have? Like, uh, you know, a handful of these, a handful of that brand. Okay, I'll take 15. And then they're like, you're, you're not, why are you buying 15, right? Like, are you a wholesaler? We're not allowed to sell to other you know uh, wholesalers and i was like no 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 i'm doing this legitimate thing i was like well who games with 15 graphics cards i was like no i'm not gaming i'm doing crypto mining and then they're like what i said well it's this thing where you use gpus to solve hash functions and then and then you know obviously that that discussion didn't go so well but like they understood that it was a legitimate business so they were like okay fine we'll give it to you and so that's how we got started and the funny thing is that we did do Ethereum at the beginning and not Bitcoin simply because we felt that it was a little bit more uh, resilient in terms of the uh, long-term capital investments because ASIC chips were innovating very rapidly. So you would buy something and essentially would get up outdated very quickly, whereas GPUs, the life cycle of that was pretty long. So there was an opportunity for us to just make an initial investment and actually have a pretty useful life for, for the mine before we had to like you know just throw away the hardware and with prior to you know the split or going from you know proof of work to proof of stake did you get caught with the kind of energy the electricity prices going up to, that kind of made it no longer viable solution to be mining well it wasn't actually so I mean, we started pretty early, right? So what happens is you had like the 2017 boom, right? And, you know, there's the 18 crash. <laughs> so during that period, it wasn't that the electricity prices were moving because if you have a large facility, right? Like you sort of have contracts where you know what the price is going to be, right? And the producers like that because they know that they have a stable demand and then you like that because you, you have a stable supply. The bigger factor was like, we well, have a price that went up like 10X and then it goes back down 90X, right? And so the issue is that when it was going up to next, everybody wanted to become a miner, right? So now the, the profit margins get squeezed. And then when it comes back down, invariably, a lot of people were mining unprofitably. And so there is like this ebb and flow in the market that is kind of like a, like a moving average of the price, right? Because it takes a while to get your machines online. So you see the price coming up and, you know, you have to build the facility, do all the logistics stuff. Uh, so in practice, what ends up happening is that uh, you only 
benefit when prices go up pretty aggressively for the and then you benefit for a, a good few months and then people catch up right because then by that time they have already deployed the capital so it is a pretty difficult business so i think overall in the long term because you have to constantly reinvest to make sure you have the latest technologies so that your marginal cost is lower right but when you do that you also suffer a lot of depreciation and so it's very difficult to make sure that incrementally you're always mining both profitably at the margin, so at every unit, but also being able to recoup your cost of capital. You know, it's similar, I would say, even to traditional mining. Like if you were doing gold mining or something like that, right? Like different people uh, start mines. It's a little bit so more... So it's like the, the, the traditional one was the guy selling the shovel and the jeans. It's like the people sending yes. the processing units are the ones making the money. No, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, think about it. Like Nvidia stock was going through the roof, you know, last few years. And, you know, how many billions did they add to the market cap? And I don't know that all the miners combined ever extracted as much money out of, out of Ethereum than just Nvidia's from selling the graphics cards. So definitely, you know, uh, that's the good business to be in for, uh, but not so much if you're the miner. So what with when it's changed over now? Is it that you, you're going looking at a, a Bitcoin now or what, what? what's your kind of plan? So, I mean, the irony is that when we started in 16 or 17, there was already talk that it would move to proof of stake in 2017 or 18. So we were like, hey, look, at best we're going to get like one more year out of this. Right. That was our expectation. Now then, you know, 17 and 18 passed and 19 passed and there's like no more words about it. And I'm like, well, you know what? Maybe this will actually last. So the irony is that we've done well simply because there was this always fear that you would have proof of stake just around the corner, which potentially made some people uneasy about investing or doing the mining facility, right? And because we were so foolish to do it at the beginning, we kind of just stuck with it. And then that made it so that it was profitable for us but I wouldn't say it would be prospectively if you were in 2020, something that made a lot of sense unless you had a pretty decent amount of connections and you could buy all these new NVIDIA 3080 graphics cards, right? And, you know, even if you did that, that actually pissed off a lot of my uh, of gamers, right? Because they were like, hey, look, we actually legitimately want to play games. We just want one graphics card so we can't get it because you, you know, just sucked up all the supply. So... That is a fundamental challenge there. Now, with the merge essentially, you know, uh, happened successfully, we 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 essentially liquidated the Ethereum machines at the beginning of the year. You know, uh, there was some residual value to that, so I was like, well, look, we can keep mining, or we can liquidate at the beginning of the year. And then, you know, it was pretty lucky because there's also huge price spikes in terms of energy at that point, right? So it would have been not so year whether it would have turned out well or not for us so we just reduced it was good timing so to basically sell while the market was still picking because you'll always get somebody coming in and investing they'll think yeah that's right they don't know they don't really know that it's going to be changing over or anything like that well and the nice thing about gpus is that you can actually use it for something else yeah right so when we're selling it we're not like hey look now you can use it to mine mine ethereum because of what these are gpus you can use for rendering you can use for compute you can use it for ai right and it's still a regular computer that we have as opposed to if you have like the asic miners it, it doesn't do anything else right so that gives you a little bit more safety in terms of that investment and uh, which is also why we started with that in 2016 but i would say that it was not super obvious that it would have worked out okay right of how volatile things were 
Excellent, excellent. So before we go on to the company, uh, Pennyworks, I, I'd just like to kind of maybe talk about your thoughts on different uh, platforms to be using wallets, sure. to, you know, because everyone's got their own kind of favorite. And I'd like to know yes. what's yours. So, I mean, for personal use, right? And I want to make that distinction because personal enterprise, dramatically different. For personal use, Ledger came out pretty early. Trezor also came out, I think, around that same time, maybe even earlier. So I think Ledger I use the most on a personal basis. There's another one that's a recent newer one, which a company called Grid Plus. I, I'm not sure if many people heard of it, but Grid I Plus One. So they come out. It's a that's a pretty large device. This is like, you know, like uh, almost like a, it's a weird shape too. It's like a triangular brick. Okay. But the reason it's large is because it actually has a full screen. So you're able to see the entire transaction uh, before you sign it. And so that's kind of the main benefit here because any hardware wallet, you can sign something, but there's a risk between what you see on the computer, right? Which is what you think you're signing, but you don't know whether that's the message that's being sent to the wallet. Because when you go to the wallet, for example, on Ledger, it says blind signing and here's this extremely long hash function or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you don't even see it in one go. You have to scroll across, don't you, as far as yeah. I remember. Yeah. But even that, well, it's just not helpful, right? Because as a human, it's like, oh, yeah, let me just, uh, you know, compute in my brain if that's the right co uh, contract I'm signing. That is actually the main risk, right? And so uh, Grid Plus One is a much larger device. It's a full screen, but it, it the screen and is part of the secure element in the sense that, like, you cannot sign something that is different than what you see on the screen, right? Whereas if you have some browser extension showing something, it, it could just be, I could make a little app that just shows you what, you know, A, and then it sends you transaction B, right? Yeah, yeah. And then transaction B is like, send me all your money and stuff like that. So that is a feature that is extremely important and actually the core reason why you would want a hardware wallet. Because the only other way to do it, like there's no guarantee that you can get that safety, right? What you see is what you sign is part of the, the the security guarantees that you need to preserve. So Grid Plus One has this facility where you can see the entire transaction. They have a facility also parse the ABIs, which is essentially for Ethereum uh, transactions. It knows what the call inputs and outputs are, right? And the nice thing is you, it can even tag some addresses. So you can have a user-friendly label, right? So let's say I can tag a specific address as Roy, right? So then when I see the transaction, I will see Roy. And if it's a contact address that's not in my list, it would just be a random uh, address hash. And then you'll note something's wrong, right? And so really that makes it much safer because you both have the clarity in terms of understanding what you're signing and two, the safety because you can visually check and very quickly uh, confirm that this is what you want to do. Kind of similar to like how Revolut works on PayPal because you can kind of do the same thing. You can see if you've done a previous transaction that, you know, I'd say even bang and yeah, send it on. And how much are they, the, that system? How much is it, do you know? Yeah, so the, the reason the Grip Plus One is so big, well, it has some other features about it, but it is kind of expensive. So it's like a few hundred dollars. It's got some other ways that's useful where the core, which is where the seat is, can be swapped out by a little card. So you have the physical device, which has a, a seed in it, but you can also use another card, which makes it so that you could just have it like a desktop device that you kind of almost like a 
cash register, so to speak. They just plug it in and they can use it. Uh, and at some point, like maybe last year when it first came out, it was very hard to order them because it is a startup, new company. So it was difficult to get one. And I got one like close to Christmas. So that was like my little Christmas present there. I mean, I'm not affiliated with the company. I just like, tested it is out. Is it an American it. company or where they... Because I, I think uh, Ledger's French, is it? As far as I remember, is it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So Ledger is French. I think the company is American, but I'm not quite sure. I mean, when I ordered it, I got it pretty fast, so within a week. So I imagine that it was shipping somewhere within the United States. That's my that's my guess. But so far, the interface was inter, uh, innovative and it's definitely useful in terms of safety. So if you are really concerned about that, like you know, spending an extra couple hundred dollars on it uh, is worthwhile. Um, but I think Ledger now also has newer versions of their software device that can also do that, um, maybe for the enterprise version, which is, again, where you really want the correctness to be there. But I haven't used that yet, so I wouldn't be able to vouch for it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, excellent. And for, say, the security, because there's, there's so many people getting caught in scams and you know, they're going to the website thinking it's there. Like, what advice would you give people to obviously using, a, you know, the, the wallet that we've just mentioned, but what, yeah. what how would you uh, kind of advise people to be protecting themselves? Well, so first order, the, the situation that we were saying that, you know, the man in the middle, it's actually very... It's very rare, right? That That's a situation where your own computer is compromised somehow, or maybe the website is compromised. And uh, in practice, it's not even that, right? In practice, you can see in MetaMask that you're just doing something wrong. It's just that most people don't notice. So what I would recommend is when you're using MetaMask, there's some pretty straightforward tips. First is when you send your transaction, MetaMask does tell you what the actual address that you're, or contract you're interacting with, right? And you can very easily click on the link that just pops it up. And you can double check what it is. And on EtherScan, it'll label, let's say it's, kind of, it's labeled like Compound or Uniswap, it'll tell you. So if that's the case, then you know that this is the actual, at least the, this right contract you're calling, right? So that's issue number one. Second of all, you can just put a nickname on it or some label. So the next time you're calling it, it'll show up as a, a known address, just like the way that I mentioned before, where if you can see a label that you already know, then at the very least, that's uh, safer than something you don't. Number one. Second of all is being able to parse the transaction data. So MetaMask does that okay for some, some protocols, but it doesn't do it for all of them. So for example, I think Ethereum works well, but for Polygon, for what I didn't really parse and you know Avalanche and so on and so forth. And obviously there's so many EVM compatible chains now that it's it, it's not a guarantee that MetaMask will be able to, to show you properly all, all the outputs, right? But that's like the first order of defense. It's like, are you actually calling the right contract? And you can see that in MetaMask before you, you you do that transfer, right? A second of all is there's also a tool that just shows you all of the approvals you've had for specific uh, tokens. And that's actually also available on Etherscan. So you can go and say, well, this is my public address, right? What are the things that I've provided approvals to across all the tokens? And you can list them out. And you know, if you think, oh, I'm not using that anymore, you can just specifically go out and disapprove them so that you don't have any potential leaks in the future, right? Part of the challenge is that some of the contracts, they're all upgradable, which means that, okay, if I approve this contract, but then the code actually changes, it could still be compromising, right? And so that is another way you can uh, you know, maintain your, I would say, crypto wallet hygiene. And that doesn't require any additional investments. It just requires you to be 30 seconds slower for whatever it is you're doing. 
Now, unfortunately, if you're trying to like fight for an NFT mint or something like that, this advice would probably make you lose out. But you know, maybe nine times out of ten is better to be safe than sorry, right? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And like coming from a kind of financial background, looking at the regulation with mm-hmm. the crypto, I just like to know your thoughts on that because I mean, my own experience with the financial, especially when we saw the crash, you know, there's so much trickery going on with central banks that a lot of people have lost faith. And they think that's why, you know, Bitcoin was created. But like regulation and kind of how central bank are kind of liaising and taking this on board as well. I'd like to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's no one regulation, right? Obviously, there's the the European set of laws. There's the regulations in the United States. And of course, every country should have their own policies on this. Uh, But fundamentally, the, the, the... the intuition as to why the regulations are there is that they really do want to protect the consumers from scams and frauds and things like that, right? It is legitimate driven. They're not really trying to say we're out to get you. They're really saying, hey, look, we're helping our citizens, right? To make sure that they don't fall for these scams. So it's not that it's coming from an uh, area where it's, oh, we're going to prevent you from doing this because we are like a evil secret society that's trying to maintain power, which is sometimes the narrative that specific communities in crypto have right so that's not the way that they're coming about it now the problem is that since it's so new they don't really know how to help you right like for example like a lot of regulators talk about crypto how many regulators have actually used metamask how many regulators have actually made one transfer how many regulators have purchased an nft that's okay sure you don't need to be a professional about it but you should actually maybe use it once right it's like saying that you're like the head of the, uh, you know, transportation or something, and you're trying to make policy about things, but you've never driven a car before, right? It maybe helps. I'm not asking you to say, hey, you need to know how to build an engine from scratch, right? But if you're going to make traffic regulations, maybe you should know how to drive, right? Because so, I, I saw that they brought in, because uh, I had learned, I'd done an online course, it was free, uh, with Gary Gensler on MAT. So I know that the American government brought him in. So obviously he understands it a lot better than, you know, the rest of them. But I don't know, is he still involved in it and what, what, where, where it is with him on that? I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm just, from what I'm seeing in the media, right, there is a basically... Definitely the folks in the crypto community are somewhat disappointed because, yes, there are security laws. These laws are very established. They've been built nearly 100 years ago, like now 1934 or something like that. So it's not like we are saying, hey, look, we're going to complete disregard 100-year-old laws, right? But then the issue is because of the capabilities of the blockchain, right, we can create a set of products that falls on the entire continuum between being a bona fide security on one end to just a simple programming tool or, you know, utility, right? It's, and you can fill any combination of those things because previously, in order for you to do that, every one of those iterations of something that you test out has to be done by lawyers, has to file all these things, all these paperwork. So there's very, the pace of innovation in financial products is very limited. It's not small, but it's very limited, right? So, you know, 2008 financial crisis, people were talking about CDO squared, 
financial engineering being the new evil that's destroyed the economy and so on and so forth because they're creating all these fancy products that essentially were mostly just benefiting the people that are selling those products, right? But what that dynamic is in traditional finance is magnified a thousand times in the blockchain because you have a contract, you know, there's a source code, you can change five lines of it, that's another contract, right? And as often the people change code, you can have different variety of financial products. So the taxonomy or the space of possible things you can have is no longer the, a security, a non-security, right? It could be a thing that turns into a security or the, and the changes to a non-security over time. It could be very fluid. It could be that it, uh, that, uh, it goes the reverse too, that it, that it is not non-security for a long time and it turns into a security, maybe on purpose, right? There's no such taxonomy in Secure's Law. They're just, you start and it's a security or you start and it's not a security, right? Or maybe it's like, they've, you know, with Ethereum, historically there hasn't been a determination, but now it's enough uh, of decentralization. So it's no longer secure so on and so forth. But it's just a different, it's just not a sufficient language to frame what is happening right now on the blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that it doesn't cover an aspect of crypto, but I'm saying that it is disappointing because they're saying that these are the only two types of things that you have, a security or non-security, right? Whereas like instead, if you think about it holistically, look, you have a technology that is essentially the internet of money. What does that mean, right? What are laws that we need for those kind of innovations to flourish, right? And maybe some of them will fall into the bucket for securities. Okay, great. And those will enforce that way. But what about the 95% of things that fall into the gray area there, right? That is not. Now you're basically forcing them to say, look, just you have to make it way, way more utilitarian and drop some of these security features or the other way around where if it's a security, you can't use it for other stuff, right? And the other thing is, it is supposed to help with transparency. It's supposed to help with safety, soundness, and trust. But but the fundamental issue is that you have to pay a lot of money to get that designation, right? Which becomes uh, an issue about fairness, right? Only well-funded companies can have securities, right? Just because they're well-funded doesn't mean that they're more like uh, legitimate in terms of the business model. Or maybe it is because people, you know, obviously have a venture capital funding. But in the fundamental scheme of things, you don't want the discriminator being how much money something has, right? And unfortunately, that is the situation for a lot of these things. And that's why a lot of people are saying that's unfair, right? So promoting fairness of access, right? Because like, you know, if you use the same argument with internet, there are a lot of laws that says, hey, look, if you're an internet service provider, you have to provide internet to the whole region, including people in rural areas, right? It's not economically viable for you to provide internet there because you're just laying down a pipe for like five persons to go on the internet. It's probably going to cost you like $20,000 per person. Are you going to ask that person to pay $20,000? Well, you want the internet this is how much it costs, right? So that, that's not a fair treatment. So you need to say, hey, we have a financial innovation, right? The fairness is say, how can we create laws that enable just about everybody else, everyone to benefit from it without having artificial barriers, right? I'm not a legislator, but you can think about it. Hey, look, if you, if you think that the SEC is a stamp of approval, right? You can say, hey, look, this is a project that has a stamp of approval, right? This is a project that doesn't have a stamp of approval. If the product doesn't have a stamp of approval and you still decide to use it, 
you know, buyer beware. Now, the unfortunate thing right now is that even people that are legitimately really into crypto, what do they do? Oh, I'm going to find this super crazy altcoin. It's going to go 100x. And yeah, of course, it's not a security. Well, 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 you know, because it has all this utility. It has all the potential to do this, X, Y, Z. You buy it. It drops 90%. I can't believe it. This thing that is a security, you know, I felt like I was defrauded. Like, why, why didn't you tell me there was a security, right? That's called moral hazard, right? And actually, that doesn't help anyone. That doesn't help the people that are supposed to protect because they were, most of them probably went into wide-eyed knowing that it's not a security or not legitimate, right? It's called like Shibu Shiba Elon Mars. What do you expect, right? Yeah. But then they say, oh, yeah, you know, when it fails, they can say, okay, well, now I'm going to call the regulator and, and uh, appeal to the regulators. When the whole premise of the blockchain was that it's supposed to be permissionless, right? So not only are you not giving clarity for people that are creating projects, but you're also teaching people the wrong thing, right? That they're, they're like, oh, yeah, well, if it, if it works out, then I could just use the money and say that it's not security. If it doesn't work out, I could just like blame it on the regulators, right? Or something like that. And that's not the right message. Yeah, um, makes total sense. Yeah, yeah, love it, yeah. love it. So with penny works. So I'm assuming penny make your money work, but I could be wrong. You might explain yes. the the naming. And the other thing is, I saw the co-founder. He looks like because I'm Irish, but I live in Poland. He sounds yes. like he's got a Polish surname, or his yes. his ancestors are from Poland. Yes, yes. So uh, my co-founder and I go way back. Uh, he is Polish. His parents are Polish. And we have built a company which is pretty straightforward. We want to be a compliant place where people can get the benefits of DeFi, right? And right now it's challenging. Uh, it's not challenging in the sense that it takes a long time to do because, you know, you and I, if you go on, you could probably spend five, uh, five minutes to, you know, participate in DeFi. Or if you didn't know about it, you can learn about it for a few hours. There's nobody preventing you from doing that, right? But what happens is that because blockchain is almost like an internet of money, it's both an investment, but it's also a, a tool or operation. Whereas traditional finance, like investments are kind of segregated from uh, businesses, right? So if you're doing something, like if you're, you're going and renting a van and doing some business, that's, that's something. But if it's an investment, you just pay money and something happens, right? And even though DeFi is very easy, there's a lot of operational part to getting that to work separate from the investment. And traditional businesses are just not set up to deal with that, right? So like, oh, I can, I'm a business. What am I going to do? I have some cash. I can put it in a bank account, right? And then I earn some interest. Not a lot, very little, but I earn some interest, right? Or I can invest in another business, right? Rent some a place, start a store, all that stuff. That's like operational, right? Well, DeFi sits in between because I have to first get the crypto wallet. I have to decide which protocol, I have to place it into it. I have to manage it and look into it, rebalance, so on and so forth, right? So it becomes a lot more operational. And also, if you're a business, maybe you don't have expertise in that because it is difficult to make sure that you're safe in crypto, right? Uh, if you've been doing it for a while, yes, it's pretty second nature, but tons of people get scammed. Will you invest enough effort to understand that business right, of DeFi, uh, just so you can earn a few more percent. And most people say no. It's like, well, I have my main business, which is XYZ, right, selling donuts, whatever. Um, 
and I want to offload the investment part to something else because that's how it's typically structured right now. So what we're doing here is I say, look, we're providing a traditional finance interface to DeFi, right? So traditional businesses, when they look at us, it's like, this is an investment. This is an actual security. It's complying with securities laws, right? And we know how to interact with that because we do that all the time, right? Businesses, they put money market funds, their business buy treasuries, bonds, things like that, uh, and they buy securities. So they know how to do that, right? It's not that they don't want to participate in DeFi, but it's like they don't have the interface to participate in a way that makes sense for them, right? And so there's also this challenge here is like a lot of people say, not your keys, not your coins, which is true, but in traditional finance, nobody holds the keys to anything. You don't it's hold true. the keys to yeah. your bank account. You don't hold the keys to brokerage. I'm not saying that it wouldn't be beneficial for people to potentially do that, but it's just that people are not trained to do that anymore, right? So they don't they don't have that that uh, institutional knowledge or or even the capability or legally they're maybe not even allowed to do it, right? That's why there are custodians in place. And so this is an opportunity here where we really want to bring the benefit of DeFi. We want to bring more adoption. But maybe the way to do it is not to force everybody to go into DeFi and be a crypto native, DGen, or whatever we like to, to say, right? But just say, hey, look, this is a this is a tool just like any other tool that would improve your financial life, right? How can we get it to you in the easiest way that you prefer to use it, right? And that might be in a traditional financial vehicle, right? For example, a lot of people are waiting for the Bitcoin uh, spot ETF which is in the United States, still not a legal product, right? And when the Bitcoin futures ETF came out, there was a huge amount, huge amount of interest. Well, why is that? Because it's not like Bitcoin's new. It's almost been out for 10 years. There's tons of exchanges already. Who is it that's buying this product that I wasn't able to buy it directly, right? So clearly the fact that billions of dollars have gone into means that there is a value there because a lot of people or even corporations or other entities just are limited in the way that they can interact with financial vehicles or products. So our product, you know, very, very straightforwardly, we help people generate income from DeFi. But uh, what we're doing is providing traditional financial interface in the form of security. And that way people are able to do that without having to deal with the operations of managing block, uh, blockchains, parsing transactions, even computing your own taxes on, on crypto is very difficult. Especially when you are doing not even just regular capital gains, but interest accrual accounts, right? And that's something that, you know, we've looked at many uh, providers and just a few of them have a complete suite of tools to do that. Or you just essentially have to hire a lot of uh, accountants to, to go through uh, those transactions with you. Yeah, I've had a guest on actually where uh, she and it, it works in the states. I'm trying to get it organized uh, in the rest of the the world, but the trust to get over the capital gains legally that you don't pay the capital gains on it. You know, so I mean, obviously that's when you're trading big volumes because it takes you know it costs a lot to get this set up at the start. But there's ways of actually you know doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So it is a whole suite of challenges. Uh, and even if you were an individual just trying to just do that, like, okay, well, you know, it's fun. So if it's a hobby, you will spend the time. But uh, if, you, if it's not just a hobby and you just really want the, the investment portion of it, uh, the fact that you need to invest in, in the uh, an accountancy, let's say you even have $100,000, right? And let's say you do pretty well, you make like 
10%. But then now you have to pay $5,000 for an accountant to go and figure it out because what you're doing is relatively uh, cutting edge, so to speak, right? So then you kind of nullify all the benefits, even yeah. though, you know, you had the decent uh, foresight and you, were, you did all the right things, but then you're going to spend a lot more time <laughs> on the accounting, which is the last thing you want to do. And my experience, because I've had a lot of companies in a lot of countries, yeah. most accountants, they don't really, they're more tax collectors, to be honest, from my experience. I, I, like I read kind of revenue books or guys that work for revenue on what your allowances are. They'll never tell you. And I mean, I've experienced that in a lot of countries and yeah. different entrepreneurs that I talk to as well. Whereas you say, can I do X, Y, and Z? Oh yeah. Can I do this, this, this? So instead of paying tax, you get a rebate, but you know, they don't seem to have your, uh, your back and which is a shame. You know, you'd assume that they'd be trying to reduce your tax bill, but uh, it doesn't seem to be the, the situation. Well, I mean, I think part of the challenge too is that because it's so new, right? It, it's difficult for them to be very confident about the, the the tax determination of things, right? Especially when you know the governments are not super proactive and say, "Oh, by the way, this is how you should do it." And now the irony is that it's actually the IRS, and in terms of the United States and how things are treated, is actually a little bit more clear than than the um, or a little bit more proactive in determining what is and what is not a taxable uh, kind of event, right? A part of it is because very early on, the IRS says, hey, look, let's just treat crypto as like a physical good, like a chair or a table or something like that. So legally, even if you sell a table at a game, you should be reporting taxes. Just like if you go on a yard sale, right? If you bought something $100 and you sold it for $150, you, that's like a capital gain. In practice, nothing happens because if you sell something used goods, like you usually don't make more money than you've already paid for it. So there's not like a gain to, to be recognized. Uh, but the other thing is, Sometimes people, you know, pay with things for crypto, right? And a lot of people are like, well, if I pay it crypto, it's not cash, so nothing really happened. But the abstract sense of the world in, in terms of accounting base is like, did I give you something of value? Did you give me something of value back? If that's the case, then you there's an event that's potentially a taxable event, right? So either you've recognized income or you sold something and so on and so forth like that. So, you know, a lot of people have, unfortunately, especially people in the crypto native space, have used the excuse that, oh, this is new, therefore there is no tax obligations for it or it doesn't apply to me. And that's not, that's not the case, right? And part of the, the reason why I'm against that is because I do feel like if you want this to be mainstream, right? If you want everyone to benefit, it has to be something where it's widely recognized and used, right, in a, in a compliant way. Because otherwise, if it's always fringe, then it's, you're not going to get all the benefits from that, especially because financial networks, right, and networks in general, they benefit from having more and more people in the network, right? So we really win when it's so natural and so second nature that everybody has a crypto wallet or some kind of well-regulated custodian that manages a crypto wallet, right? Or in such a way that regular payments, most of the stuff could happen through, through crypto wallet. Right. And we do that by saying, well, then that the need to have well-established tax procedures, well-established ways for government to interact with it so the government can feel comfortable about it. And that's how we really win at the end. So when somebody 
Because I, I, I seen from the site that it's like four to six percent is the kind of return and you can do it daily as well. It's not you're locked in, which I always, you know, find a, a huge benefit because some of these things, you, you know, you sign up for a year or whatever with what annoys me is for a lot of the companies kind of doing, you know, what you're doing when they're paying with fiat through the credit card. It's the credit card processing companies and PayPal like taking say 2.93 percent that's taking a lot of the margin so is there i would love to see them kicked off because th there's no way it should be that high that they're they're charging that yeah i mean i, I think part of th that is just how the existing financial architecture is right if you want to receive money in traditional finance that is actually the only way because otherwise how would they do it right so i think in in europe uh, you have a much more effective system, right? Because you, you can pay people through IBAN and it, I think it's fast yeah. and nearly real time, right? In the United States, there's no such thing. So there is certain uh, features like um, called RTP and a new one that's coming out called FedNow next year, which will allow much more real-time payments of traditional dollars to individuals, right? But unfortunately, because, so there's like a, because the United States was so new in terms of the financial adoption and the innovation, the irony is that it actually takes them longer to get to the next level because there's such an installed base of people with the old technology. And the analogy there is similar to kind of cell phone adoption, right? Uh, cell phone adoption, for example, in China just happened much faster than the United States. Why? Because there's not that many people with landlines, so they didn't have to switch. They're just like, well, now I need a phone. What is the latest phone? Oh, that's the mobile phone, right? And so that's kind of part of the barriers to entry. So we, the United States was kind of first, and a lot of developed countries have these systems already in place, which means that now you have to switch, which is a much more expensive cost than, say, if you just didn't have a system, it, there's nothing workable, then I'm just going to use the latest one that works for me, right? So uh, until we get that broader adoption, until we get the cost down, and that's part of where the Ethereum merge comes in, right? Most of the main chains are EVM compatible, and some of the chains are going to use Ethereum as kind of the, their settlement layer or checkpointing system. And when they do that, they're also going to do rollups or uh, uh, other methodologies to kind of scale up the transaction throughput which means at some point you're going to be able to process very mundane but frequent low-value transactions, right? 10,000, 50,000 of these transactions per second. And when that finally does happen, there could be a point where it's, hey, look, I'm just going to go and then load up my crypto wallet and then I can just use it for day-to-day -day transactions because incrementally I can pay 0.005 cents to buy a coffee there or 25 cents with my traditional credit card or debit card or whatever, if I have a business, I'm accepting it, that that's what it costs I'm paying, right? And you know, 25 cents, maybe it's not that much, but it's a huge difference if you're if you're a small business. I mean, most of the things you sell, like if you're a coffee shop, you're selling $5 things, right? And it's not um, just that, actually. It's you don't get the money immediately. They're normally right. like 30 days later, whereas when you're doing it on the blockchain, you're getting it instantly. Yeah, yeah. and so some some people don't appreciate that cost, right? So what happens is that anytime when you have gaps in which two events happen out of sync, what you need is some financing, right? To bridge that gap, right? 
And so what's happened is like if you're paying for the coffee shop, well, the guy gave you a coffee and then you didn't give them any money. So they're really bearing the cost of not receiving that money now. Because then, well, let's say tomorrow they run out of coffee beans and they go buy it. Well, they don't have that money. If they then either borrow the money or have a stash of cash that they, they need to, to do that. So when you make transactions atomic in the sense that the cash transfer at the same time as the coffee transfer, there's less need for additional financing, right? Now, for $5, maybe it doesn't matter. But if you think about it on an industrial scale, tons and tons of money flows through from this kind of gap finance. If you have a project, you have like a shipment or other stuff, like you might take two weeks or three weeks, somebody has to front that cash to get that to work. That's a huge load of a lot of what the financing of business is, right? So if we're able to do that settlement much faster, we can actually free up the cash to do other things, which might actually translate into more efficient economy, lower cost of funding for just about any other source of projects that you need to do, right? And reduces risks. Right now, if you were buying a house in the United States, it's very, very manual. A lot of paperwork. You have a table, and you know, uh, especially in New York, there could be like ten people on the on this table signing documents, filling out forms, all that stuff. Okay, so then everything's good, and you, you know, everyone's happy with the paperwork, and y'all go home, and then like, you know, what's one guy hit, gets, gets hit by a car or something? What happens to the documents that they had? You know what I mean? And so there's nothing that actually is finalized at that closing table when you buying a house. There needs to be a lot of other issues that go through before the house is uh, definitely yours. And so in between that, there is a lot of risk, right? So having atomic transactions and using those as default medium to, to settle things reduces risk significantly in the system. And that could basically bring benefits to just about everybody. And sounds like which because I, I see the system in Poland for property and it's actually a lot better than Ireland. I mean, Ireland is like you're waiting for one solicitor to get the documentation to go to the other guy. And it's like they're just playing tag for, you know, three months and they're just, you know, emptying your wallet at the time. Whereas here, you know, you get the documentation to the notary, you go in and you just sign, you know, sign the contract in front of the notary, you're done and dusted. And like when you look at doing everything on, say, the blockchain, because I mean, in a lot of countries, you have a lot of even solicitors, you know, doing dodgy deals, whether getting more mortgages or selling something a few times. That doesn't happen when it's done to the blockchain with a smart contract. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's an entire industry in, uh, in the United States. I'm not... I'm not sure if there is one in, in Europe, probably there is, but it's called title insurance, right? And title insurance is just an insurance to say that when you actually bought the house, that the owner actually had the right to sell it and that you are the rightful owner of the house. It's silly to buy an insurance for something where conceivably, why isn't that something that you could assert before you buy the house, right? And the part of it is because the records are poorly kept, right? So if the records were properly kept, and it's just to your point, like how much does it cost to actually do a transaction where you just basically assign the label to who owns the house to this new person and then assign the money to the second person? It costs like five cents, yeah. right? And so, but here instead, you have all these lawyers, you have the title insurance, which is tens of thousands of dollars, depending on the size of the purchase price, all that stuff. All of that overhead goes away. Yeah. No, I, 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 I see it happening, and I see you know with the NFTs and everything, it's all exciting. But uh, no, it's uh, it's 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 the future's looking brighter. That's the way I see it.
Yeah, and uh, on the topic of NFTs, you were mentioning, right? So, like, NFTs is interesting. So, I think even now, most people don't think NFTs are securities, which, you know, that I think that's a fair assessment. Now, if you draw, if you draw a picture and you sell it, like, that's not security. Uh, but the moment you start fractionalizing it, right? So, that's what I was talking about with the continuum. The moment you fractionalize it and start selling it, then it becomes potentially a security based on US law, at least, right? Uh, but what if you fractionalize it where each person owns a specific pixel? Then maybe that's no longer a security because there's a one-to-one -one correspondence with the thing that you bought, right? As opposed to a provider share of the thing that you have. So these considerations have dramatic security considerations, but on the implementation side, it could have just been like, oh, how we built the contract, right? And so it there is a degree where there's a huge opportunity here for developers of smart contracts to be a lot more familiar with kind of the, the legal considerations of the design features, because it might be that on the exterior what the outcome, it looks the same, but just how do you account for it in the intermediate steps that causes it to have a different security designation, right? Now, I'm not a lawyer on this, but I, I feel like th there is a huge gap there, which is why there's so much conflicts. And we could do much better by being to resolve ourselves to say, hey, look, we're going to be able to get more broad adoption if we can build things that are consistent with the law or at least easily interpretable by the law so that people feel more comfortable with what we're doing. Yes, no, definitely, definitely. Listen, I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. You might let people know where they can get in contact with you. Yes, so pennyworks.com is our website. We're also on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter. Just look for Pennyworks. My name is Ivan Zhang. I'm also equally easy to find on LinkedIn and Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. Uh, we always love to chat about crypto, finance, economics, and any other topic that uh, uh, you'd be interested in. And uh, yeah. No, perfect. Yeah. Thanks very much. I'll make sure I put all the links both in the audio and the video. Thanks a bunch, right? Um, so that's all for the crypto podcast. You'll find all our episodes on the cryptopodcast.org. As mentioned, we're on YouTube. And I'm also a coach, as I discussed at the start, bio.link forward slash podcaster. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five star rating, share with your friends. Until next week, take care. <laughs>